donde esto con todo lo que hace el Felipe, I'm going to speak on it. I've got new hearing aids that they're useless. Actually, we have some great fun in the office during, during the week. When we have these discussions, and I just sort of walk away and the discussions finished, and what you'll find is it doesn't really let blood pressure any good. But you hear this, Will you come back in here? And this morning, my ears are worse than ever. So you can, you get a great bit of anything you want this morning, but you can be standing there out there. Not a problem. But when we come together on a Sunday, we want to hear what Jesus has to say to us. We want to hear with our spiritual ears. And you know, Jesus has got such an incredible vision for us as a community and individually. And Ross brought that contribution a little earlier about our purpose and finding our purpose in Jesus, finding our reason for living. And every one of us has that call of God upon our lives. And it may be we cannot define it say we are a this, we're a that. But the reality is the primary call of God upon our lives is to be that child of God walking in his presence every day. And out of that comes the specific things God wants us to do. Last week, David Campbell, he shared about the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom is a supernatural power and rule of God, and it's far greater than the church. The church, the community of believers, is the conduit, the channel, the agent of the kingdom. And when we look at the church, we've got to recognize that the church is us. You know, one of the challenges, I think one of the difficulties we have, we always think the church is somebody else. And so as leaders, what happens is, people come and say, I think the church ought to do this. And what they really mean is, I think you ought to do this. So what we tend to do is, when people come and say that, and you may have uh, this advice, well, go and do it. And when you finish, come back and tell us how it went. Now, what I have found is, when we release people to go and do what we think I should do, they rarely come back a second time. So it works. It works. But we are the church. The person sitting next to you is the church, if they are a believer in Christ. You are the church. So when David Campbell says the church, that community of believers, is the conduit, the channel, the agent of the kingdom, that means that each one of us is an agent of the kingdom of God. I can see you are absolutely free with that thought. I've got a smile over here for my sister here. You finish your exams, haven't you? She's the happiest person in this room. <laughs> And in order for us to be that conduit of God, I believe there are very, very simple things that we need to recognize and hold within ourselves. Because God is not looking for Superman or Wonder Woman. And sometimes we can exclude ourselves from being used by God by listening to lies of the enemy. Because the enemy always wants to neutralize us. 
And as we listen to the lies of the enemy rather than the truth of God, it's almost like we, we do his job for him. But if we recognize our place in this plans and purposes of God, what an incredible releasing thing that is, because it means I'm not looking to my weakness, I'm looking to his strength. And we need to be those who hook and get into the power and the presence of God rather than be bogged down by our own faults and failures. God is looking for co-laborers. And a co-laborer is someone who actually does something and not just talk about doing something. And you will know that the person sitting next to you is really good at talking about doing something. That's Chris Rutter's job. <laughs> We're all called to be called laborers. The called laborer is one who actually will just do something and fulfill the purpose in practical action day by day. You don't get a builder into the house and then expect them to sit and look at the work. Now, some of us may have had experiences. <laughs> I'm really pleased that certain people are here this morning who are engaged in the building trade, and it would not apply to them. But you have these sort of situations, haven't you, where you employ somebody to do the job, and you get to that point where people are just sat on their bottoms for hours. What we need for, and what God is looking for, are those co-laborers who believe the word and will actually do something as a result of what they have heard putting something into action. But ordinary men and women. And you know, the incredible thing is that God, out of his grace and mercy, is willing and loving sufficiently in order to use the likes of us. Now consider the Garden of Eden. And last week, David Campbell, I think, began by looking at the Garden of Eden and the development. And at, at that point, if you're a preacher and you've got an idea of what you're preaching, the next week, you're going to steal all of my material. But he didn't. He went off in a slightly different direction. But if we look at the Garden of Eden, what we see there, man is created in perfection. He bears that image of God. And then he goes and he chooses the fruit to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Of all of the things he could have chosen, he goes and eats of the one thing he's called not to. And you know, that is repeated in our lives day by day by day. If you show a child a room full of toys, and you say there's only one toy you are not allowed to play with, guess which one they head for? They head for the one you will talk. You know, we seem to have something in us that leads us in that particular way. And ever since the fall of Adam, God has chosen to work with fallen human beings like us. That's his choice. That's his heart. He came and he works. He comes and he works with us. And so from the Garden of Eden, there's almost a sense in which God is now working with damaged goods, where the image of God has been damaged. There's a verse which refers to the birth of Seth. You've got Cain, Abel, and Seth. 
And it said of the birth of Seth that Adam had a story called Seth, and Seth was born after the image of Adam. In other words, from that moment on, from the moment Adam fell, every human being is born with this sinful, fallen image of God, broken. They've got this creator who made us so beautifully, but now we carry that stain of sin. But the gospel tells us that God didn't write us off. We're here today as testimonies to the fact that God, out of his grace and mercy, has not written us off, and even has paid our debt through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we ran up huge debts of sin, and God says, I'm going to pay that off for you. We are an amazingly privileged people. God uses fallen, damaged human beings to be a conduit of his power and love and his kingdom. So we qualify. Now that's good news. That really is good news. We qualify. And I want to look at one or two characters. Well, that's a lie. I'll look at three. But I thought if I told you three, you'd expect the sermon to be extremely wrong. Okay. I want to look at three characters, because I want us to see in these characters, and the way that God used them, that he specializes in using fallen human beings. Now, the, the idea is that we go out from here and say, how can I sin? That's not the point. The point is, God will meet us where we are, and use us as we are, and we are not to disqualify ourselves. Because Christians are so ready to disqualify themselves, and you may have said this to yourself, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. And that is a lie, because in Christ, the Father has made you worthy. It's not that you are suddenly good enough, but in Christ, your sins are forgiven, and he sees you in Jesus. So the first person I want to look at is Noah. And you know, we've got this incredible story of Noah, whose judgment comes upon the world, and as a sign of that new covenant, God makes with Noah, he says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. And you know, we need to be those that when we see the rainbow, we need to remember the covenant of God between God and mankind. That God has promised never again to wipe man out through the flood. And so when we look at the rainbow, we, we, we need to see the spiritual significance and remind ourselves of the spiritual significance behind that. And, and so that we, in doing so, we are actually giving praise to God for that covenant in which Noah stood and in which we now stand. And when we look at Noah, we get this incredible man of faith, which we're going to come back to in a little while. But he's this man of faith, God speaks to him, and he's a co-laborer because yes, he does something with what God has said. He goes and builds an ark in the middle of the desert. And that takes some faith, it takes some courage, 
And then when we read later on about Noah, and I love it because the scripture does not just whitewash and cover over the human frailty of mankind. But it's all out there for us to see. And as we read this, again, we don't go out and repeat the experience, but we recognize the grace of God that is at work behind this. It says, Noah, this is Genesis 9, chapter, uh, verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil proceeded to plant a vineyard. Now we've got the white ones here. All right. So he proceeds to plant a vineyard. And so far, so good. But then it goes on to say, when he drank some of its wine, so he's sampling the fruit of the vineyard, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered inside his tent. And that uncovered means he was naked. He is so far blubbled that he's lying naked inside his tent, and the family have a nasty experience. If you read the story for yourself. And you might think that in that situation, was God taken by surprise? No. He knows what's in the heart of man. That event didn't take God by surprise. It took Noah's family by surprise. It didn't take God by surprise. And as a result of that, God was still faithful and fulfilled the covenant that he made, which is why we're here today. And when you look at the life of Noah, I mean, it's you know, one of the first things because of my background, I thought, well, he won't get into good Methodist. He won't have got into many Methodist churches. And yet God still honors his covenant Now again, this is not an encouragement to go out and drink from the vine over much. <laughs> but we need to recognize God can only use all of human ways because sins happen. That's what we have to work with. So we qualify. We qualify. The second person I want to look at is Moses. And Moses depicted in many ways in the, uh, in the cinema. For those of us of a certain age, we'll always be child and Heston. Yeah. The rest of you are just about the idea of John Hester is. Just for a little bit of a very old. In order to know who John Hester was, John will tell you. But we've got other characters who come along and, and played the part. But when we look at the history of Moses, we see here there is a, a man fallen. A man who is able to commit some incredible uh, sins and crimes. But God is faithful. Let's just read one episode from the life of Moses. One day after Moses had grown up, because we know the story, grown up in the household of Pharaoh, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. This is Exodus chapter 2. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Right, now here we are. 
And it's so easy for us to read over that story. Oh, he saw an Egyptian uh, speaking Hebrew. He tells him, turn it inside, like the dog. Now, there are one or two daytime programs on the television that God has given us the technology to record. They don't give the impression I'm sitting there all day watching this program. I don't really have that impression. <clears throat> and one of them, well, well, well there's two. Father Hunt is one. And I've been watching Father Hunt with four children. <laughs> and you know, when you watch Father Hunt, what, it reminds me of the rejoicing there is in heaven when one sinner is saved. Because there's one occasion where they made a prophet. And I went, you're kid. And I remember, there was a student actually, forgive me, student. But the student went, oh, kid, sing! He made a plan. I said, what's that about? How much more rejoicing there is in heaven with one sinner. But that's what the program's talking about. The program is law and order. Right? Now, I love law and order because within the space of 40 minutes, it doesn't matter what the crime is, it's solved. Marvelous. But when they're going through the process, and I've got to admit, it's a, it's a real insight into uh, the American legal system, but you wonder how anyone gets convicted of anything. But that's another thing altogether. But when you look at that, they're looking at the lead up to the crime, and then there will be discussion about the nature of the charge that they can lay against the particular person. And when we look at the story of Moses, it just struck me that in verse 12 of Exodus 2, it says, Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And if you were watching Law and Order, they would look at that. He looked this way and that, and it was premeditated. Moses, this great man, murders an Egyptian. And then he has to flee from Pharaoh, because Pharaoh finds out about him, so Moses flees, and we don't have the story unfolds. And we see that within Moses, again, as the story of Exodus book, that there is this flawed nature which comes through again and again, but the reality is God will use Moses in order to bring his people into freedom. And God wants us to understand that as individuals, his plan and purpose is to use us to bring us as a community and to bring his people into ever-increasing freedom that we might enjoy the grace of God and the inheritance that he has for us. Our job is not to bring people each other into bondage, but to bring one another into joy, to enjoy the ever-increasing freedom that Jesus died to give us. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And you're a flawed human being, but God is still committed to using you as he has used his people of the Old Testament. The third person. Rahab. And Rahab is described in very sort of graphic words, as no flowering, but Rahab the prostitute. 
Had he all these men of spies go up into the land? He said, Joshua, son of Nun, seek and send two spies into the land. Go and look at them. So they went. Now, if we were on a mission trip, we would not necessarily be really encouraged when the report came back. We went and we entered into the house of a prostitute. We were taken to one side and given deep counsel. But Rahab, she is the instrument God uses in order to save the spies and ultimately bring the people of God into their inheritance. And when we look at further scripture, when we look, we find that Noah is commended for his faith. Moses is commended for his faith. Rahab is commended for her faith. And yet each and every one of them very flawed human beings. There is hope for us. There is hope for us. Because the reality is, God will use us as we come to Him in humility and faith. You know, when you read the scriptures, what you find is the highest priority God seeks to place on faith. Faith. Trusting in Him for everything. You know, when we look through the disciples recorded in the Gospels, they were not without their faults and failures. The ordinary human beings, with all of the weaknesses that we have. We find them arguing about who is the greatest in Mark chapter 9. So we've got Jesus here, and all they're concerned about at this point is who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And I would imagine that each thought they should be. I don't think they were arguing that the other brother should be the greatest. No, or should be the other brother. If they were greatest, they probably would be. After you, do that, do that, do that, do that, do that, do you have Peter, who betrays Jesus three times. Peter, the very impulsive one. You have Thomas. And Thomas, you know, the great story of Thomas, as he's there, Jesus appears. And what Thomas is saying, at best he's saying the disciples were mistaken to say Jesus, and at worst he's saying, you're liars. But Jesus told him. And then Thomas's weakness, in his fallenness, Jesus appears to him. Pastoral is one of the biggest issues facing any community is the problem of people not believing who they are in Jesus. People wrestling with the poor self-image and therefore excluding themselves from being used by God. And when we look at these characters, we realize in all of their weakness, again, we don't know necessarily but in all of their weakness, God is faithful to his plans and purposes. And as we come to him and say, Lord, use me. I come in all humility and recognize that without you, I have absolutely nothing. 
excuse me, that draws the heart of God, and he will be faithful to his covenant with you to use you in ways you never ever thought possible. But we need to look upwards rather than inwards. We need to look to his faithfulness and come to him and say, Lord, help me in my weakness. Or as the Father came and said, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. What a a terrible prayer. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Do not disqualify yourself from being used by God. Come to him honestly and say, Father, I need you. We make this so complicated. But we come and say, yeah, I've got it wrong. Help me. I want to be used in your plans and purposes. So we go to where we started in the Garden of Eden. Because I think there's something here key that helps us to move on from where we are. And we all know the story very well in the Garden of Eden. And after Adam had taken of the fruit, God comes, he's walking in the garden. Adam hides. And God says, where are you, Adam? And when we read that, he's not, he's not asking that question because he's lost it. You know, I think we need to realize, God knew fine well where Adam was. Can you imagine God about that? <laughs> I don't know where he is. What, what he knows. And of course, you know, <laughs> if that had been a human household, the lady in the household would say, I told you look there. Maybe I'll get up there. But God is coming along, he said, Where are you, Adam? And he asks that question because he wants Adam to recognize where he is spiritually, not the fact he's hiding behind the bush. And Adam gets up, I go, I didn't, I did I know I did. No, no, God said, Where are you, Adam? And your innermost being, and God knew exactly where Adam was, there was a punishment that God still established the punishment. That is incredible. Absolutely incredible. And as God comes to us and says, where are you? He's not doing it in order to bring you into defeat. He's not doing it to bring you into hardship. He's doing it because he wants you to recognize your need of him. That's why God asks these hard questions. He's not that bothered particularly uh, about a complicated answer. He simply wants us to recognize we need him. So when God comes and says, where are you? Where are you in your needs today? He wants us to recognize that without him we're nothing. Without him we have no hope. Without him this community has no future. But with him all things are possible. With him sky is the limit. Or theologically heaven. Don't place a limit 
on how God can use you. He's well aware of your weaknesses and in his covenant of love, he still is committed to using you. So as the music group come back to the stage, Now, if you're a visitor here, I hope you realize how seamless this is. See? I want to finish by encouraging you about your qualifications for being a follower of Jesus. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Now, obviously, he's not writing this to Durham students. <coughs> the modern version would be none of, not many of you had common sense. Now, that would work, wouldn't it? The Durham students, they leave now. But not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And here we have what gives the clincher for each and every one of us. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the right. You know you're qualified. Because in Christ, you're foolish. Now, I dare every husband here to turn to the wife and say, God says, you're going to go out God chose the weak things. He chose the foolish. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and things that are not. Now I've no idea what the things are that are not. But I think basically by the time you get the end of this passage, you realise it's included everyone. So you're weak, you're foolish, or you're a thing that is not, in order to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. Why has God chosen? Why has he chosen the we have no ground to boast. It's all of His grace. So as we head into whatever God has got for us, or whether you're a visitor here, you're going back to the church, God has a plan and vision for your community of faith, and He wants you to rise up as the child of God you are, take hold of your inheritance, and know that your loving Heavenly Father has committed himself to using you. Let's stand together. Father, we want to thank you for your grace and your love. All that was promised in Jesus. We want to thank you that it is all of you and it doesn't depend upon what we learn. But it's your grace. And we ask, Lord, that you will give us a new insight 
and to how precious we are in your sight, born of human beings, and yet restored through the blood, death, and resurrection of Jesus.